Alright, just a second here. Get everything set up on the back end to make this reality. here waiting on Ray to give me a call. We're going to get this bad boy underway. I apologize for the mic being so much in the frame. So much in the frame. And it's taking up a good section of it, but you know, it'll be I'm going to message Ray here let him know I'm ready when you are. I will ask him, Mom. I will definitely ask if Raymond Dog the Bounty Hunter. Great show, by the way. If you haven't wasted a significant amount of time watching Dog the Bounty Hunter, you may not be human. Oh, here we go. Hang on one second here. Let's see what we got. Ray, are you in the house? I am in the show. <laughs> what? How are you doing, good sir? Thank you for joining me this evening. I know it was kind of an impromptu, late last second thing, but I was like, you know what? Let's just let's just get it done, Ray. <laughs> My thoughts exactly. That's right. That's right. Uh, I got to ask how how was your day? Uh, you know, I know I know things were were kind of wild over on the the Discord there for a little while. Boy, that was touchy today. <laughs> How so? Uh, How so? I don't know. It was there for a while. It just it got hit. things. Things were just hostile. I tell you what, it is. Everybody is sensitive because they've been cooped up in the house for the last uh, three months. Well, really, for the last year, uh, but they haven't even been able to blow off steam in the yard really for the last you know three months or so. And I think just being being uh, cap cap held captive in their house, it, 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 people started to develop cabin fever, and that's what I think. That's what I think was going on there. I don't think so. I don't think so because uh, uh, we got a call. Bad practice. Bad practice. I mean, that's just that's just it. I mean, uh, there's no other way around it. I mean, I. I saw some things and I thought, oh, really? Is somebody really suggesting it? <laughs> yeah, Ray, I got to ask you, my my mom asked a question, and this is via my father, and he wanted to know, have you met Dog the Bounty Hunter? No, I haven't. No, <laughs> I haven't. I'm just curious. I never know what no. you're going to run into <laughs> while you're out there. It would not shock me if it turned out you all two were best friends. No, 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 not at all, because the the thing is, is that in most cases, the dog would be going into areas and districts where 
That's flyover country for me. <laughs> okay, that's flyover country because uh, with the dog, his mean quote-unquote clientele are people that are have an issue with myth and they've violated parole, they've uh, they missed their court or whatever. All I know is that it's now his job to bring them back in. Yeah, I'm not going to lie. Uh, the places he's hanging around, I probably wouldn't be hanging around either. Uh, what is it? Trouble breeds trouble. And so, you know, I, I try I try not to stay in places where there is uh, potential for um, going to jail, if you know what I mean. That's, that's just not, that's not my cup of tea. You know, going to jail or else, uh, <clears throat> you know, the one occasion where you're at risk for getting shot is if you're dealing with organized crime figures or drug traffickers in Hawaii. That's the only time you're at risk of getting shot. That's enough risk for me. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) 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 So, no, no, I haven't run into dog. I mean, uh, because, and furthermore, you you know, I don't live like that, so I would have no reason to know him personally. (laughs) I hear you. Uh, well, today, Ray, uh, we've already got some good questions coming into the chat. And then also, I'm going to be periodically sending you a few soil tests. We've got a few of those to analyze. Uh, all right, for, all right. For everyone at home, if you have a, um, uh, a question that you want to ask, feel free to throw it in the chat. Or if you have a soil test or something you want us to look at, you can send it to thegrassfactor at gmail.com, and we'll get to those. Uh, kind of first things first here. Uh, I saw this one, maybe go back and uh, address a couple of different things, but uh, Mr. Slake here, Slake, Slake, I'm not sure how to say your last name, but he said, what is the best way to seed hybrid Bermuda on a sports field renovation with very little turf grass, lots of weeds, and centipede? I thought I'd let you go ahead and get started on this. There's one thing, there's one thing about the question that I don't know if it's valid from the get-go, and that is... Are there any viable, true hybrid Bermuda seed of, uh, seeds available? Or all of your true hybrids, are they going to have to be vegetative? And then you're going to have like improved seed varieties, but not a true hybrid. Am I wrong about that? You're correct. There's improved, and then there is supposedly Princess 77, but Princess 77, I consider a Failed experiment. Why do you consider 77 a failed experiment? It's not a very hardy grass. And another issue is that as far as growth habit goes, uh, no, it has not lived up to promise because when somebody tells me hybrid Bermuda, my mind immediately thinks, okay, we're talking about any dwarf or actual dwarf Bermuda. Sure, it's not supposed to grow. It's not supposed to grow like hayfield grass. And Princess Seventy Seven kind of grows like hayfield grass. Yeah, 
I'll I'll give you that. It is uh, it's a little leggy. I I liked it. I always had decent success with it in my area, and I thought it was more aesthetic than uh, the majority of the common varieties that I saw. So I'd never had any real major issues with it, but I I could see where people did it. it, uh, You know the the cold the cold would get to it occasionally. Um, and what was it that came after Princess 77? It was kind of like back to back to back. He had Princess 77 and then it was, um, what was the, what was the other one? Riviera. And then what was it Arden 15 and Mon- no, uh, or yeah. And then Monaco, Monaco or whatever. Monaco. Yep. Yep. And even then all those grasses have essentially the same growth habit. You know, they, yeah, they, 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 they do look all very similar. Improved for improved aesthetic compared to common, that is for sure, but mm-hmm. probably not a true hybrid <clears throat> in the in the literal sense of a of a hybrid Bermuda. No, not at all. Not not nearly at all. Because the what I call semi dwarf or even true dwarf Bermuda has a slower growing yet denser growth habit. In other words, here's my test for something that wants to call itself hybrid Bermuda. Can you take it down to 0.3 inches without it thinning out? That's a, that's a, I think that is actually a very fair prerequisite to carry the title hybrid Bermuda. Is is that, that in between stage that I can tell you right now, if I took common down to, I'm thinking about the turf in my backyard. If I took it down to 0.3, it would just be, it would be a disaster. It just, it wouldn't work. That's where I have to start getting real crazy manipulative with the growth regulator. And even then at that point, you just, you sacrifice aesthetic for the low high to cut. You know what I mean? I know exactly what you mean, and uh, I look at it, too, in terms of what are you doing by mowing down something that will not maintain density at that height of cut, and by not maintaining density, you then open yourself up to more weeds. Because the whole point of mowing low is to encourage density to try to keep out some of the weeds, because I know... You keep Bermuda over, say, three-quarters of an inch, and I'm talking about common seeded Bermuda, it starts to open up a thin at the seed. On the other hand, you try to keep it down at point three, you're thinning it out too much, and you're, you know, again, making a problem for yourself. Yeah, yeah. So establishing one of these seeded varieties types, um, seeding uh, uh, seeded variety types into a sports field uh, with very little existing turf grass, lots of weeds, and centipede. Um, how would you seed into that? Uh, nothing like a good kill and maybe even a burn off. That, that's mandatory. You can't get around that. You gotta either kill it off and and possibly burn it, or let's uh, see, even have to fumigate it to make sure that there's nothing left alive in that field. Because there's nothing worse than a half done renovation that 
turns into a problem. And oh, by the way, if somebody can grow centipede, you know, unasked or unbidden, I think somebody needs to draw a soil test and find out what exactly is going on in the soil because <laughs> when centipede grows nicely, I start to ask about the actual soil composition. What's in that soil? I start to ask Matt, and you know why. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, yeah, centipede is, if you've got a lot of centipede going, there's a high probability, and it's growing with ease, there's a high probability you could be dealing with uh, a fair amount of uh, uh, low pH soil. Um, you could have sandier soil too. Well, you're probably going to phosphorus. Yep, yep, yep. I mean, you know, you want to talk about poor, depleted, drained out soil. I mean, that's actually centipede native habit is, you know, you know where centipede natively grows? Uh, right away is in China. Hillsides in China where there's like no rich fertile dirt. It's like basically acidic and totally depleted of all other nutrients. That's why no one should ever have centipede as a turf type, in my opinion. <laughs> because nobody has that kind of soil, and most people, they don't want to keep their soil in that condition in the first place if they have a lawn. Am I right? You, no, you're exactly right. You're exactly right. Yeah. So if you were doing a seeding project on a sports field like this, you, you perform your applications to fallow. Um, are you going to sand cap it before you seed it, or are you going to attempt to establish the seed into the existing soil bed? I'd actually do a half, a half and half where I'd lay down some sand and then seed onto the sand cap. But of course, Part of that operation includes correcting the underlying soil conditions, be it phosphorus deficiency, low pH, whatever. Because there are times when I'm actually in favor of cultivating the whole thing to a depth of about four to six inches, amending it, and then compacting it down and then go and then going from there and that that's is, in cases where i need to move, move ph extremely <laughs> uh that is more effort than i would put into it <laughs> but if i had the budget for it then I, I probably wouldn't be totally against it but uh yeah, it would depend yeah, on what my budget was too well the other other factor too is when I look at extremely acid or extremely alkaline soils, for example, if I'm in a renovation situation, that is my one opportunity to take the pain and fix it that one time. And once it's fixed that one time, you don't have to do anything more than a light maintenance application of lime or sulfur going up going here on out versus having to correct after. I mean, because I, I've done so much correct after, after the fact that 
uh, I'm a bit adverse to just going with it and then having to deal with it later. <laughs> sure. Sure. Yeah. Um, let's see here. Let's see here. Uh, what was this next one I saw? Mm, where did it go? Oh, all right. Barry Camarillo said last fall, he had a customer whose saltwater pool overflowed onto St. Augustine. Need ideas to help the turf recover? Water and maybe even displace some of that sodium with gypsum. Yeah. Because what you need to do is just flush out all that salt. Now, the, uh, uh, w- one of the things I would say um, about that is he is in West Texas, so we're dealing with high calcium soils. And so I could see where a lot of times that would get people thinking in the mindset that, oh my goodness, I don't need to apply any, uh, I don't need to apply any gypsum because I'm already off the charts. But in this instance, you're really attempting to displace any kind of accumulated sodium that built up. Uh, so I think, I think, I think you're going to be all right by going ahead and getting down a little gypsum, even though you're going to be naturally high in. Uh, in soda in, in uh, calcium. I'm sorry. Yeah the the other the other way to do it would be to uh, carefully acidify the soil and turn that caliche soil in Texas into some soluble calcium, and then then you reach. That's the other way to do it. Sure, sure. Um, Ray, I. Uh, let's see, ignore those first pictures I'll send you. We'll, we'll, we'll get to that a little later in the show. I just sent you a soil test. We'll take a look at that here in a minute. Uh, but until then, uh, which post-emergent herbicide is most effective at removing POA annua from dormant Bermuda grass monument tribute total or negate. And <laughs> listen, you're dealing with all the same classes of chemistry there. Those are all sulfonylureas. Um, we are dealing with trifloxysulfuron, uh, forum sulfuron in the tribute total, and then negate is going to be rem sulfuron. Right, right. In terms uh, of overall efficacy, I don't know if you're going to see just a tremendous difference between the three of those, depending on the timing of your application. That's, that's right. And, you know, I'm actually in favor of a totally different mode of application of you know of action on poa or emerged grassy weeds in fully dormant Bermuda. In fact, I would tell people if the Bermuda is still fully dormant, why are you not going out with a simazine and tenacity tank mix? Uh, yeah, that, that would be one. Simazine and Tenacity, uh, SureGuard. SureGuard is another one. I, I mean, I just am thinking about how all of the sulfonyl ureas have varying degrees of tolerance or resistance in the cola, and the way to get out of that is to eradicate your population with an alternate mode of action. And in fact, 
You can even use efficacy or progress in dormant Bermuda. That's what it's labeled for. Yeah, that's right. That's right. You can do that as well, too. You, you, can, you can. So, but note to everybody, do not apply progress to dormant or non-dormant zoysia unless you want to kill it. <laughs> I just thought I'd put that out there. <laughs> yes, please. Please don't do that. Uh, that's one of the yeah. ones that you really got to pay attention to the label on that uh, because you, there there are some restrictions to using it, and you need to double, triple, quadruple check. Uh, and pretty much, and I, I want to put this out there, that from this point forward, for the majority of the time, a lot of the new herbicides were, that we see over the next 10, 20 years are going to have very specific use case scenarios. Very specific. And we're going to, it's it's not like the old days of mixing up, you know, two ounces per thousand square feet of, of uh, MSMA and just go willy-nilly with it. Uh, those days are over. Uh, the days of, of just mixing up three-way and 4600 in the truck and going and spraying. And, uh, you know, if you, if you didn't get a good kill, you just run your three-way a little hotter. I No lie, this is a horrible story, and I hate even admitting it. But when... I first got into this, I remember seeing people that were mixing three-way so concentrated in their backpack that when they would backpack it on Poet, the Poet would die. I mean, stupid stuff like that. We've, oh, my God. We've got to move <laughs> past that. Yeah, and I, I, I'd say that guy's name, but I don't know. They're, I don't know. That was, that was back in Memphis. Uh, Ray, I sent you a soil test here. Uh, pretty interesting. This one is out of, uh, out of Franklin. I'm going to put up a screenshot of this on the screen for mm -hmm. anybody to see. And just wanted to, uh, get your feedback on it here. One second, one second. And I will tell you, uh, the information I had, uh, it says tall fescue, a brand new account, very stunted and very yellow. Uh, is it, do you think the zinc has any issue to do with it? I've never had a test, uh, with, with these levels before. I think it would have something to do with it in that I think I was talking to somebody, uh, the other day about how zinc and copper can become toxic. That is, that is a possibility. And other possibility if this is in fact true go look up at his phosphorus level because I don't think I get to see phosphorus levels that high I mean that's an example of too much yeah right there, there I, see, I see 424 and I do know that once you get above the 200 mark or the 250 mark you are in the range where that's the level where it starts to interfere with things like copper, iron, and manganese because it'll form an insoluble and unavailable complex even within the plant tissues. So I, I, I got to say, this really, is, this whole thing is is pretty bizarre. Um, that much phosphorus and potassium is high. Okay. Um, the organic matter on four is a little bit on the high side. Zinc is is on the high side. The iron is still at 310 parts per million. Uh, mm -hmm. I mean, that is 
uh, toxic. You know what I, <laughs> Pretty close. No, 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 you know what I, you know what I think this uh, almost says. What's that? What happens when somebody bought the Milorganite sales pitch? That when I when I first look at this, when I first look at this, I was either convinced that there was a lot of compost applied over many years to this lawn, or this was on some sort of malorganite because the potassium, yeah, it looks high, but still that's only two hundred and ten parts per million. So that's not extreme. I see some of that in the Tennessee area on just completely native soil. So that doesn't shock me so much. The phosphorus number is very extreme. We rarely see that in Tennessee. And then the iron number, is we rarely see that in Tennessee. So that would account for the excessive amount of phosphorus and the excessive amount of iron that we're seeing here. Then you, you start coupling yeah, that yeah, with, with zinc on top of it, and you're like, boy, it's uh, things aren't going too good here. Yeah, it's just like too much of... A lot of things, and the only way I can see to get out of that is maybe, just maybe, you're going to look at having to flush this soil out with some kind of a mild acid to just leach everything out. And unfortunately, the other factor of remediating this is you're going to have to bag all of your clippings and throw them away and probably do that for a year or two. Yeah. You've just got too much of everything. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, you know, I was thinking along the lines to, uh, you know, probably just a nitrogen and potassium only program, bagging clippings and discarding them. Um, it, you know, like you said, it, potentially doing some acid treatments, whether that be diluted sulfuric acid or um, uh, citric acid. Uh, yeah. Johnny Fescue depends on whether or not you have control over the irrigation. Um, but this is this is difficult and this is going to be extremely difficult for a long period of time unless some real action is made on it. it but I'll say this. There's nothing about this that shocks me about it being stunted and yellow and not really performing because um, if you, as a human, was fed just a, a pure diet of nothing but secondary nutrients and, and carbohydrates without ever ingesting any protein, uh, you know, I could see where, it, you know, you're just, you're going to start to feel weird after, after a certain amount of time. You're not going to be able to go very long in that direction. Yeah. So kind yeah. of the same thing here where you just, it, everything's been done way to excess without any really kind of sense of balance. <laughs> there's no yeah, moderation there's, here yeah, at all. There's no moderation. And here's the other thing that's like like jumping at me. How does somebody have their phosphor their sulfur level so low? How does somebody if you know have all all these other nutrients at high to very high levels, but their sulfur level is ultra low and this is a case for if this were mine, I would make ammonium sulfate denitrogen source for this yard. And the other indicator pointing in that direction is a 7.1 pH. He can handle it. I think he can handle it. 
Yeah, I, I definitely think it's doable. Could you imagine, though, if you did a quick, you know, pH drop to about like a six or something? My goodness, that would just be, that would be bananas. I don't know. It, it, it might get toxic pretty quick. That's a, that's, yeah. a, that's a good one there, Johnny Fesky. I appreciate you sending that in. That is, uh, that's a fun one to look at. Um, all right. Well, all right. Here's, <laughs> move on to the next one. Then I'm, I'll be sending you another stool test here while we talk about this one, right? Uh, Crack Fizzy said, help! 24816 Miracle Grow 10 pound box. I got an 8,000 square foot lawn, four gallon backpack sprayer. Google and box instructions not helping. Put, point, point me in a generic direction, please. And thank you. Soil test everything low, New York State. <laughs> Ooh, oh, yeah. Okay. Well, here's, what, uh, here's what he's going to have to do. That 10 pound box is going to have to go over the 8,000 square foot lawn. And that's going to be, man, that's going to be some work because a four-gallon backpack sprayer is the most miserable way I can think of to spray one gallon per thousand square foot. <laughs> oh, good luck. Yeah, this 10-pound box, you know, you, well, first off, if you're in New York, you don't need to be applying it right now anyway. <laughs> it's, it's way too cold. Y'all got a lot of snow down. Uh, what I would do is use the climate appraisal form uh, to find out when you need to start making your applications and then time it then. And you can go out with something like, based on what your climate appraisal form tells you, what your nutrient demand is going to be, then you can start adding that in. So you may be adding, and we'll look at it this way. For every pound you dissolve, uh, it well, okay, we'll say you're applying one gallon per thousand square feet. Every pound you dissolve in one gallon will deliver a quarter pound of N, uh, 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 an eighth of a pound of K, and a sixteenth of a pound of uh, P. So that I, I may have messed up those numbers there. But basically, you're getting 0.24 pounds of N for every pound you dissolve in a gallon, and you apply a gallon over 1,000 square feet. So that at least gives you a starting point on what to do with it. Yeah, that's, a, that's actually a pretty nice spoon feed for a lawn that is low in absolutely, totally everything. It's a good starting point. Uh, missing information, of course, is does does he have a salt issue? Does he have a pH issue? I mean, that's kind of important because... If you do have a salt or pH issue, even spoon feeding has you know limited results or limited uh, effect. Um, Ray, I just sent you a couple of soil tests from Texas, and uh, you know this is so stereotypical Texas. We were talking about high calcium the other day. And, uh, mm -hmm. and I thought this would be a fun one for everyone to look at here. Uh, this first test I'm, I'm uh, showing to everyone, we have 12,527 parts per million of calcium. Yep. That uh. is a good load of calcium. And this is so stereotypical for Texas, like normal. So when these people are talking about or concerned about one, two, 
3,000 parts per million of, of calcium, I promise you, you do not know what high calcium actually is. I have no idea. And uh, this is a case where you had better be uh, thinking about how to, how to remediate your excessive carbonate and bicarbonate. That's all I got to say about it because, yes, and, you know, I saw something. The soil is tested according to the malic tree for the phosphorus. But what is the soil pH? Yeah, 8.2. And so in real life, I suspect that his potentially available phosphorus is even lower than that. <laughs> I yeah. suspect it's even lower because... Everybody knows what malic tree extraction involves. It involves hydrofluoric acid, nitric acid, and EDTA. Which is really going to pick apart every last bit of phosphorus in that soil. Well, it'll, it'll tear apart anything. You know, it'll tear apart anything and, and dissolve it because between nitric and hydrofluoric, because what the hydrofluoric does is it aggressively binds to any calcium and then the nitric and the EDTA go to work and put everything in solution. Once the calcium's out of the way, that's how the tree works. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so typically when you're dealing with higher soil pHs like this, what is the preferred test method to measure phosphorus levels? If, if possible, and, it, and this is a good idea, is you use what's called uh, the Olsen phosphorus determination method, and that involves sodium bicarbonate in a concentration that buffers the extraction pH to a pH of 8. So it does not falsely state the amount of potentially available phosphorus in the soil. Because if you were to test this by Olson method, I would guess that his phosphorus would be half to a quarter of that. Just guessing off the top of my head. Yeah, yeah, that's a. I'd say that's about right. Uh, I'm going to throw up the second test from the same person, front and backyard here. Um, and here we're looking at fourteen thousand parts per million of calcium. Again, high pH. Um, this is just very typical of Texas. In fact, the one thing I would say that is. It's high on this, and I love how they classify it as as, as very low. But um, uh, I would expect to see sodium a little bit higher uh, because of you know Texas. Um, where mm -hmm. else in the world do you have so much freaking sodium in the soil? I'm not sure anywhere more than than Texas. I don't. Maybe Hawaii. You you tell me, Ray. I don't Hawaii. know. Hawaii, Hawaii does. Hawaii. <laughs> Bless Hawaii your heart. Does. I'm sorry. <laughs> thanks thanks man yeah wish i could help thanks you lot, I, i'm not i can't help you with that oh uh, boy but 
if this were ever a case for somebody, and I see something else, they show the sulfur as high, and again, that forensically tells me that maybe somebody was trying to apply sulfur, maybe somebody was trying to apply ammonium sulfate, maybe somebody was trying to apply potassium sulfate in the attempt to just try to get that pH down. But when your calcium levels are this high, the only thing that even begins to get it down is some kind of an acid flush. Yeah, you got to do whatever you got to do to dissolve as many of the carbonates and bicarbonates that that soil is probably thick in to give yourself a fighting yeah. chance. Yeah, I mean, you're you're basically going to have to even push it to the very limits of, you know, tolerance in that uh, I've actually, on some soils, I've used as much as five pounds per thousand square foot of citric acid at one time. Uh, how many? Five pounds? Yep, five pounds per <laughs> thousand square foot. Lord have mercy. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Yeah. And when I apply something like that, if I happen to apply that over some kind of, you know, soil that doesn't have grass over it, it just foams up and boils over. <laughs> I can get some strange looks from the neighbors in that regard. Not really, not really. It's just that I can see it, you know, on the soil surface just kind of foaming up and, you know, coming up and then that's my sign that, okay, this is working. This is doing what I needed to do, and that is to try to reach out and ad address some of the excesses bicarbonates and carbonates in the soil. Let me let me ask you, Ray. In a situation like this, what about uh, going with uh, maybe in combination of citric? And I'm just I'm totally spitballing here, just freeballing ideas. Uh, what about going out with something like eczema and Citric acid. That's a possibility, although uh, I was telling you that my vendor that sells XMO told me when the soil is that terrible, forget the label rate. He says you set up a dosatron injector on a cart and you pump out a 100 to 1 dilution of the XMO, and you just keep on going until that drum is gone. <laughs> yeah, I know there's not a lot of um, um, uh, strength to the, the reaction of eczema, you know, but, uh, uh, and, and that's why I think you would still need the, the, the buffer of, uh, of citric acid or sulfuric acid with that, but... Uh, at least to uh, start to get things working and and start to dissolve some of those carbonates, uh, because unfortunately, I just think you would have to apply so much of the eczema. But in terms of safety, especially if you don't feel comfortable handling citric acid, and it's not to say citric acid's not going to eat your clothes off, but if you got a cut on your hand, it's probably going to burn worse than other things you felt. 
Um, sulfuric acid you have to be extremely careful with. That is not uh, uh, something to be nice with or kind with. Um, even if you're dealing with a 1% solution, I would just warn you, be entirely extra careful. Um, so I, it's nothing I would ever recommend anybody, really, except you, Ray. <laughs> so well, but, That's why I, I, don't, I don't even want to mention it. And furthermore, <laughs> and so that's why I was dealing... Go ahead, go ahead. <laughs> go ahead. And furthermore, in this case, he's actually a candidate for another treatment that I use for soil that's like this, where I add something called sulfur DF to the citric acid. And what sulfur DF is, is it is sulfur that is ground down so fine that it's microscopic. It goes into suspension very easily. It's normally used for fruit trees, for spider mites and powdery mildew, but in that form, the sulfur is so finely grown that if you apply that and water it in, it just starts reacting like that day. And again, that's at about five pounds per thousand. Yeah, you know, you gotta, uh, again, you know, smaller particle size is ideal. What you're looking for to make all these things uh, a, a reality. And yeah, I don't know. I, that was just an interesting thought with the, with the eczema. Um, yeah, I, I, I've, I've been playing around with a little bit of it recently, so it's on top of my mind. And then actually Johnny Fescue mentioned it in the, uh, in the chat there. And I was like, Oh yeah. Eczema. I haven't thought about that in terms of safety. You know, it's non-toxic, non-corrosive. Yeah. It's pretty benign because, uh, if you can put that through a normal boom sprayer at like 32 ounces per acre, and not have to water it in immediately. That's pretty benign, I think. Yes, yes, I would agree. Uh, and <laughs> and if you do not have the experience doing these types of things, you know, benign is a good thing in that uh, in in that regard. Yeah. In, in other words, I'm telling people don't do what I do unless you fully understand what you're doing and you're not taking shortcuts because the flip side to that concoction that I just described is that you are spraying that immediately in front of running irrigation. Because between the sulfur and the citric acid, if you leave that on the grass until the next time it rains, you're probably not going to have turf left. Yep. Uh, Ray, I sent you another soil test, uh, and then we will get into uh, Timmy Bluegrass, your question here, and then uh, Johnny uh, Johnny Larkin will get into your because uh, we're going to talk about zoysia after this, but we're talking about the zoysia that I do not like. So, and you really don't like it either, Ray, like on a whole other <laughs> level. Um, but we would have two totally different managerial styles to, uh, to deal with it. So I would, I would like to get to that eventually, but before we get there, um, let's throw these up. And this actually came from, uh, this came from the land down under. I'm throwing it mm -hmm. up on the screen now. 
Um, Mr. Ben Simmons. Yeah, yeah. It seems like uh, I think I think he was helping the person with this, and and they just wanted another opinion on it. So, um, I thought I thought I would take a look at it and see what's going on. But interestingly, it kind of fits in with the topic of du jour that we've been dealing with here. Look at this. Uh, we have very high pH. Now, and here's the thing. I do not know the test methodology here. It did not state on, uh, I don't have the appendix and the other information about it. So as far as these values here that I'm seeing regarding zinc or copper, manganese, iron, phosphorus, calcium, magnesium, I have no idea what extraction method was used here. So we're going to go ahead and pretend it looks, it, it looks like cations were develop your, you know, put forth either through malic or ammonium acetate. Um, yep. So malic, malic is the way that you get uh, this kind of micronutrient uh, determinations out of an alkaline soil as you digest it with malic tree. Because it, the, you need the strong acids in order to dissolve it. Mm -hmm. There we go. And so, you know, number one, pH. It all start begins and ends with pH, and number two, uh, your phosphorus level is actually alarmingly low. Yeah, so I would consider the thirty-eight parts per million critically deficient. Uh, I, yeah. and I, I think the MLSN states that uh, critically deficient is thirty-one parts per million. But if you've listened to any of us talk about it before, uh, you do not want to maintain levels at MLSN. You want to make sure you never get to MLSN labels. Uh, that is like <laughs> your last line of defense before things start going real bad south. So looking at this, and now what's bizarre to me is that the, the, the lab that tested this says that 38 parts per million of phosphorus is above ideal. That, okay, that is tricky to me. Uh, no, it, it makes perfect sense to me. It makes perfect sense to me because even in Australia, they have issues with phosphorus runoff from the land poisoning the reef. Oh, that's issue. right. That's right. They have an issue. So they, they want got, they it maintained issue. at minimum level of sustainable nutrition, a la 31 parts per million of phosphorus. Yep, yep, yep. They, uh, they, want, it, they, want, it, they want it down, but then what should be considered is the fact that I've seen what grass looks like when it's on 38 parts per million, according to a meal with three on an alkaline soil, it ain't pretty. That is the other thing that really increases the complexity here is how alkaline the soil is with a pH of 8.3. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because basically what you're dealing with, you know, just off the top of my head, is if the soil is that alkaline, at, and he's only got that 1,300 or so calcium. That's just basically limestone and sand. 
Put the limestone and stand. Yeah, thirteen hundred parts per million of calcium and one hundred thirty-four parts per million of magnesium. And but I tell you what's interesting is that when you look at the base saturations they list here, there is literally no hydrogen in the soil. How is that possible? Sand, pure sand. <laughs> basically, if you were to try to grow grass on a combination of sand and limestone, and I normally don't pay much attention to, I don't chase CEC numbers, for example, but what's jumping out at me is the sub-10 CEC yeah, and for those of you playing along at home, uh, CEC is not something I really get excited about where I'm like, oh my gosh, you've got to do something to increase your CECs. You've got to improve your soil CECs. But when you see something like this, when you when you see something like this, it is it means that your application methods, you are going to have to adjust to meet the CECs of your soil. So seeing it sub 10 like that, is a direct indicator of your soil structure being primarily sand. And therefore, mm -hmm. you pretty much at this point are locked into having to spoon feed in order to have a successful. Two, I have nothing against applying phosphorus, as you know. However, I will come down on somebody that, for example, treats this soil by applying the year's supply of phosphorus to that soil all at once, they will hear from me. I won't be happy because there's nothing in that soil to retain that phosphorus and keep it from running off or leaching. Yeah, sand is not known for holding on to things very well. So, uh, you know, again, learn from this. If you see low CECs in this, in this, like in this scenario right here, uh, that means you're dealing with primarily sand. And and don't get fooled because I'm telling you, I look at more soil tests of people who tell me they have the worst clay. Oh, I've got the worst clay. I've got the worst clay. No, I've got the worst clay. No, I've got the worst clay. And you look at it <laughs> and they have CECs of around a 10 or a 9 or an 8, but they have really high magnesium and they have really high iron. And so it appears they have red clay when in actuality they don't. They have hard red sand. Yeah, hard red sand with the inversion of calcium to magnesium and uh, fix that. And that will probably make them a lot happier with their soil. So there. Yep. Yep. That is that. Fix that. Fix uh, that. And <laughs> so the next thing here, uh, Timmy Bluegrass said, Ray and Matt, bluegrass in northern Maryland. My fungicide plan for this season is tank mixed Zimplar and Cleary's 33-36 for dollar spot and Azoxy and Propiconazole for summer patch. May and June are straightforward, but I'm unsure about applying a DMI in July here. Should I use a low rate or leave it out and go with something else, just Azoxy? Okay, here's what I'd do. I'd actually save or reserve my propiconazole for early spring, and I prefer to actually switch out to Query 3336 
during the hotter parts of the year because uh, or they're kind of a patch disease. I remember Dr. Laurie Trenholm over in Florida doing work on Bermuda grass decline. And what she found out is that if you do too much BMI in hot weather, you actually aggravate your patch diseases because their growth inhibition or growth regulatory effect hurts the grass more than it helps it. And in fact, the best treatment for patch diseases in hot weather is something like 3336. And I've been in the lawn business long enough to know when the standard for patch diseases, especially on a reactive basis, was this fungicide called Benweight. Who, what, when, where, why? You're showing your age. Benweight. Benweight. DuPont Benweight, Matt. (laughs) When was it? Back in the 60s, Ray? I've never heard of this. Well, it was on the market until about 1995 and what got it off the market was I believe DuPont had issues with sulfonylurea contamination of the Benley because what happened immediately prior to that issue occurring was they changed the formulation of the Benley from a dusty wettable powder to a dry, foldable type of a granule. However, make note of this, Matt, that granule shape was strikingly similar to DuPont's sulfonylurea bare ground herbicides. Oh, no. I tell oh, you, yeah. DuPont has had more snafus in their history. Imprellus, anyone? Um, and then maybe any other chemical manufacturer out there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they have it. In fact, uh, this even uh, hit close to home because I have a cousin over in the Big Island who's uh, married to a man that has a big orchid greenhouse, and his orchid greenhouse got fried. Lord have mercy! By that, by that, by that stuff and. I was puzzled by it because back in the day, I used to spray the Benlight wettable powder on not only my, my lawn, but I used to use it on my roses. And I had no problems, but I never used that granular DF Benlight on anything. Because by the time that happened, uh, I had already, uh, you know, I still had my supply of the wettable powder one, and by then it got yanked off the market, and I got converted to thirty three thirty six. That's kind of a wild ride, and uh, yeah. <laughs> not too shocking to hear Dupont with another mega massive mistake. Uh, no wonder they got sued into oblivion many, yep. many times no over. They, no, yeah, no wonder they are basically no longer marketing anything to the turf ornamental or greenhouse market. No. They're out. (laughs) Uh, I don't know what the total figure on uh, the Imprellis lawsuit settlement was, but I know I'm fairly certain it was in the billions of dollars. 
Uh, it looks like money. Michigan alone was three hundred and eighty-eight million dollars. Just Michigan. Yikes! Yikes! Um, and that, I know the Umbrellas incident was the one that finally put the nail in the coffin for them making moves in the uh, pesticide in- injury. I'm not seeing a total of what it was, uh, but I'll tell you right now, it was massive. A lot of people. Massive. A lot of people. Yeah. And- and by the way, immunocyclic pericolor has not gone away because they quietly sold the rights of that to Bayer, and now Bayer markets that for airground products. Yeah, yeah, makes and, sense. Yeah, yeah, because. Uh, Imagine a combination of methylferon methyl and aminocycloterichlor. Yeah, I'd say that is a, a pretty dang good mix there. Yeah, you, you get dirt, don't you? Yeah. <laughs> you get dirt. You get dirt. But, uh, so there. Yeah. Uh, if anybody wants any light, friendly reading, uh, feel free to look up the old herbicide um, Imprelis, I-M-P-R-E-L-I-S, and watch what happened to all the coniferous trees in all over the Midwest and the United States. Uh, boy, what a disaster it was. All right, Ray, so Johnny Larkin is converting his yard to El Toro Zoysia via plugs. And he asked, should I be pounding the nitrogen? Everything I have seen says two pounds of nitrogen per growing season. And this is where we will have a fundamental disagreement, but I'll let you go ahead and state your case. But I do want to make it clear, as much as I love Zorgia, El Toro ain't it. Okay. Uh, If you're in your your first year growing, you are allowed to literally hit that area with a pound of nitrogen per month of growing season in combination with another pound of phosphorus and another pound of potassium and keep that up for that year until you do get growing. And I just, I think I just surprised you, man. Yeah, Ray, <laughs> well, I thought we were going to argue here, but boy, we are not going to argue at all. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, that's, there we go. Uh, Johnny Larkin, you know, Ray and I have two different management styles. One, because I've never had to mow zoysia grass as, as part of me maintaining a property. Therefore, I've always been more aggressive with it. Um, I've never had good success running low input programs on zoysia grass, but I never had the opportunity to spoon feed zoysia grass either. I was always on uh, subscribing to the once every six week application kind of methodology because I've worked in corporate lawn care. And so um, I never had success trying to get out and be light and be gentle. I found that the more gentle I was with zoysia grass, the more temperamental it was back to me. That being said, Again, I was not spoon-feeding Zorgia. I'm sure if I had the opportunity to have more control over, one, my release rates, two, my application rates, and three, my application frequency, I may have had even better success in a spoon-feeding program. So I don't have that amount of experience to say without a doubt one way or another. But, uh, you know, where Ray especially maintains full service, right? 
Um, a lot of that has to do with clip frequency and uh, 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 the the amount of, of clippings you're you're achieving on an area. How much is it bogging down the mower? How quickly is it burning through your reel? All that fun stuff. Because you got to remember, Johnny, Ray would never, ever put a rotary mower on Zorgia grass. Never. Am I right? You're, you're quite right about that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that would just, you know, yeah, that just, that ain't going to happen. Yeah, because El Toro is what I call a half-inch height of cut grass. Just know that. <laughs> half-inch height of cut. There you go. You heard it. You heard it. Um, <laughs> let's see here. We, uh, Tony Tillman met, met Dog the Bounty Hunter in December of 2015 at a movie theater in Honolulu. How about them apples? <laughs> that is yep. funny. Yeah, I can see that happening. It's just that, to be honest with you, uh, I have not set foot in an actual movie theater since, I want to say, 2005 or 2006. Really. <laughs> wow. Wow. I know. <laughs> um. Uh, so, Jacob uh, here said, the higher, the better on CEC, right? Yes and no. Yes and no because <laughs> I was gonna say just flat out no. Yeah, yes and no because between ten and twenty is probably ideal for balancing between nutrient retention and how well your soil responds to agronomic inputs, but over twenty you get into issues like you apply a product or you apply materials and you don't know where it goes. And then when you get into that situation, you find that you have to either exceed application rates or apply more often to get a proper agronomic response out of your fertilizer application. And likewise, if your CEC is too high, products like pre-emergent herbicide will act Net squirrely alert will get squirrely because that high CEC may bind to your pre-emergent and be such that your pre-emergent is locked up in that high CEC and not typically available to deal with your weeds. It's a mixed blessing. (laughs) Yeah. So, um, um, uh, Jacob, I would say uh, no. It, it uh, high CEC is not better. I think it, Ray gave you a more accurate description there. More so, when I see a CEC level, it just tells me basically what kind of soil I'm working with. Um, and again, adopting uh, different philosophies, different approaches to uh, uh, fertility management based on what those CEC levels are. I've got to say, I've managed some higher CEC levels. I'm not going to say anything crazy, um, but well in excess of 20. I've never run into specific issues related to um, uh, herbicide issues, but but I will say there have been some odd post-application weirdness that has occurred before. And I, I don't know how to describe this other than you make a fertility application and then a little bit of chlorosis sets in 
Um, I have seen that, but it's not all the way across the board because I've also had had people send me pictures and stuff that have had the exact. In fact, Barry Camarillo, who talked we talked about earlier, was talking about applying um, uh, fertilizer around the base of trees in the turf. The St. Augustine becoming chlorotic after the application, and and that's kind of an odd thing. And he's in, well, actually, he's going to be in super high CEC soil in uh, West Texas. So, um, I don't know. It's 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 interesting, but it's just a number that tells you how many cation bonding sites your soil actually has. So, in effect, how much of what you apply in terms of cations can be held onto in the soil, be it too excessively or exactly enough or not enough at all. And when you start getting into trying to manipulate those things, good luck, really, in the long term, without doing major tillage, major uh, movement of earth, really making a big, a big needle move on that, good luck. And chances are, if you are trying to make a big needle move on that, especially on the upward rise of things, you're going to create more problems in the short term than you are going to create solutions. So it's kind of a slow long game and adjustment of your fertility philosophy. What does CEC stand for? It stands for cation exchange capacity. Yep. And I actually tell people, do not do anything to deliberately try to raise it. Don't. I mean, that's just uh, chasing the number and you're better off applying the agronomic basics. Yep. Uh, here's kind of an interesting one. I'm going to kind of jump to the bottom and then we'll go back up. Uh, John Kaiser said here, he said, our company cuts every yard I fert and squirt. Mulch kits on mowers for safety. Would PGR apps reduce cut time enough to be worth the money? This is in the transition zone, so I'm guessing cool season grass in the transition zone. I remember what you said, Matt, and I'm going to tell him, don't, and if anything, and if he has trouble keeping up with his clippings, he's probably overdoing his nitrogen in relation to everything else. There, that's my answer. I mean, I, all, I heard what you said about <laughs> PGR on Paul Fescue. I heard I'll, about it. I'll give him a little, a little leeway on the rope here and say is that sometimes when the conditions are just right, there ain't nothing you can do to slow down tall fescue. There ain't nothing you can do to it. And in fact, you can go just purely from the standpoint of not applying any fertilizer to it whatsoever. And it is still going to scream out of the ground. He's saying tall fescue, Zorgia, and Bermuda. So would PGR apps reduce cut time enough to be worth the money? For certain on Zorgia and Bermuda, assuming assuming you can adhere to the tight schedule to maintain regulation. You cannot mess up maintaining the turf under regulation. You can't mess up in terms of misapplication. You can't mess up in terms of missing a PGR application. So once you're in it, you're in it. And you got to be fully gotta, committed and dedicated to it. I, and may I add that if you're talking about regulating pescue, I mean, Zoysia and Bermuda, Trinexapac alone is not enough. 
Yeah, and and so that's why I was also thinking, you know, maybe is this something where you do a combination of uh, of like a new and and Tranexapac? Maybe. No, actually, what no, what I'm thinking about is longevity of effect. I mean, this is the situation where on the Bermuda and the Zoysia, I'd be looking at more for primidol to increase the duration of regulation because. In transition zone and southern Bermuda, for example, Trinexapac only has a 10 to 14 day duration of effect, and then you've gone through the growing degree days and you're done. So, so you need that primitive frequency. And this is why it's so important to pay attention to your growing degree days when timing your applications because you don't want to run out too quick and it's it's funny aldo asked last night why you recommended including uh fluprimidol with your tranaxapac and i think you just answered it there for the duration you get out of the product so that way you're not having to apply every 7 14 15 days yeah every 7 10 or or 14 days because i'm i follow that uh Greenkeeper app as to how long a Trinexapac application will last, and it is shockingly short if you're just applying Trinexapac by itself. It is shockingly short, but if you add appropriate amounts of fluoroprinol to it, for example, you can stretch that out to 21 to 30 days, and I routinely stretch it to 30 days by, you know, applying appropriate amounts to say Zoysia. It's regulated and regulated hard for a month. <laughs> yeah, and uh, well, in residential lawns, can't use Paclobutrazole. I was going to say that could be an option too, but um, doesn't care. No and, and don't put yeah, it on no common Bermuda. Let me tell you that right now. Don't put it on common Bermuda. Don't ask me how I know, but I'm telling you, don't do it. It actually does okay <laughs> on fescue. It does okay. Well, don't ask Kelly why you don't put uh, all on common Bermuda because what he did with his is he, he regulated his common Bermuda out of existence, although that was his objective. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah. And I, I gotta say one of the things I didn't mention in that last video I just posted earlier today, which is total clickbait. I'm sorry I put that out. I, I'm, I'm, I'm running an AB split test right now to, to figure out some things about YouTube in general. But, uh, actually I applied T-Nex and Paclobutrazole, but I didn't want to just like blast it out there that, oh yeah, everybody should go try Paclobutrazole because it did, it hurt the turf. Like, noticeably hurt the turf it graded out i ran too high of a rate and uh and it was it was tough and uh, you know there was at one point where i went two weeks and i could not get a clipping i couldn't get any clippings off the grass whatsoever and this is with two pounds in down within you know a four and a half week period and you know almost a full pound of k down too and i mean it just it was not doing anything <laughs> Yep, I actually, uh, I actually was following that. You were telling me your experience with that when you, as you were doing it last year, and uh, that is what Paclobutrazole will do to 
Bermuda, especially Bermuda that is cut with the reel, because you can use tackle on golf course roughs and maybe on the fairways, but you got to be super careful about your rates. You absolutely can't do it on the real cut sections of the golf course because that's what will happen. <laughs> Uh, and so the follow-up question here, uh, related to the mowing and the growth regulator is, um, what, uh, is there a PGR for seed head suppression in common Bermuda? Ooh, boy, that one is kind of tough because I know of one called Embark. And I also know of one called uh, Beer Makes It. It's I know the chemical name is called Ethifon. But Ethifon is not labeled for residential turf. Embark was. And last time I heard, Embark is no longer produced uh once market stocks are depleted it is gone uh let's see uh your kinexa pack does not have an effect on seed heads in bermuda so that that doesn't work oh here's what here's the one that i was thinking proxy by beer that's that's just on uh-huh, but you yeah. cannot, you cannot, or and must not apply that to residential turf. It's uh, golf only. Golf only. Um. So I I haven't tried a lot of those, and you're you're stepping into weird territory when you're starting to play around with some of those PGRs. I don't know. I guess it's not too weird. Um. But I just just kind of warn you there. Just kind of warn you. It could oh, be, you could be headed real deep down a rabbit hole with a lot of risk. Oh, and by the way, I really don't like what Embark did as far as the appearance of the Bermuda goes. I didn't like what it looked like. Because you know what it reminds me of? Uh, Paclobius mild, result? You know, mild roundup poisoning. <laughs> Lord have mercy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it like mild, ro- <laughs> mild roundup poisoning. Uh, but, but if you want to go towards that kind of, you know, effect, I know that uh, Inazequin has temporary growth regulation effects even on the desirable turf. But uh, again, the growth regulation from Imazequin is due to it mildly poisoning even the desirable turf grass, and it just so happens that the turf grass is able to overcome it and grow out of it about a month to a month and a half later. But I, I just don't... <laughs> no, you're right. This is going down a rabbit hole that... Uh, might not end well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. PGRs are not to be taken lightly. I know it's it's trendy to get out there with your T necks and all this fun stuff, and 
uh, but it, it just understand that you're you're doing some real plant manipulation with PGRs, and it doesn't always end well. I can tell you that from experience, and anybody who has messed with them long enough has made at least one mistake with a PGR in their lifetime. Being, whether it be intentional or not, like in the instance of using a PGR that uh, resembles a glyphosate application. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Ray, there is another question here. I'm gonna we're, we're gonna go back back in school for a little bit. Uh, my lawn temp is 46 degrees. I guess my soil temperature is 46 degrees in Charlotte, North Carolina. Is it okay to start my prodiamine applications now? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> go for it. And let me just kind of clear up something about prodiamine applications and that when you have low soil temperatures, you actually have an extension of time when that prodiamine is going to be effective because at low soil temperatures, the mechanism by which the prodiamine degrades is slowed down as well. So if you're mildly early, that is not a sin. That's not a detriment to you. Yeah. So prodiamine applications applied starting in February, followed by a second application in May or June, uh, were of the highest uh, rated efficacy in a multi-year trial, according to Rutgers University. And there's lots of information about this, but typically... If you're applying pre-emergent early and early, you know, being uh, uh, early spring, late winter kind of time frame, prodiamine. If you're going late, so like mid-spring or late spring, uh, whether in a single application or a split application, the later you want to push it, then dimension or dithiapir would be your better choice. Um, and then we could throw everything out the window if you want to go the route of uh, uh, spectacle or w one of the other uh, pre-emergence, you know, again, getting into the weeds with, with etofumisate and, um, probably not too many people here are using oxidizon, but again, another, another little caveat to the tail there, but for a dinitro uh, aniline, you know, you're looking at earlier applications, your boy is prodiamine beginning a little later. Yeah. 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 And you start to treat and apply that application more like a post application in that your objective is to get leaf retention of that act. Like I think we went over how if you apply your dimension like a classic pre, you're not going to get the post emergent activity, but if you apply your dimension like a post emergent weed control application, you are going to hurt the crabgrass. Yeah, and and uh, I, I'm going to actually be revamping one of my old Prodiamine versus uh, uh, Dithypir videos. But um, again, if you want post-emergent control out of dimension, it has to be, uh, number one, a liquid application. Number two, max rate of two pints per acre. Number three, a surfactant incorporated with that tank mix. Otherwise, you're wasting your money. You're spinning your wheels. If you were expecting a post-emergent effect from your dithiapir, that's assuming that you have one, two, three-tailer crabgrass in your lawn. A lot of times, people think they're getting post-emergent effect out of it, and they're only applying a small rate, but they're 
still early enough that they're not dealing with one, two, three tiller crabgrass anyway. So, you know, what do you do? Yep. Uh, Craig's lawn yep, care said he just read an article from NC State that pre-emergent early was not a bad thing at all. Uh, no, you know, I spent um, 10 years, you know, putting down pre-emergent in, in January and never had any issues with it. And Ray, cover your ears. I need earmuffs. I did it out of a permagreen a lot too at low volume. Uh, all right, you can take your earmuffs off, Ray. Um, but <laughs> I, so I, you know, I am a, a big proponent that I would rather be early than late. <laughs> so uh, that's my philosophy on it. That's where I've had uh, tremendous success with it, and nobody could talk me into anything otherwise. Right, and part of the, part of the success is. If you can apply a very uniform application of a highly concentrated spray, I'm talking about half a gallon per thousand volume or 0.3 gallon per thousand volume, and you're totally 100% uniform with that application, that can work because I know that an egg, that is their routine application rate. In fact, they consider... Uh, a one gallon per thousand square foot or 40 or 50 gallon per acre application, basically drenching the field. Yeah. And you'll, so, you'll notice a lot of, especially with ag, you know, they're timing a lot of that stuff with rain too. Um, where I am in the transition zone, it's my rainy season right now. Um, so, yeah. you know, when I'm putting it down right now, there's not a week that goes by that I do not get at least an inch of rain. I'm going to average four to five inches a month from starting at Thanksgiving all the way through May. So, um, you know, I get 48 inches of, of rain a year here. So it is, it's, it's a perfect time for me if that, if I'm going to play around with low volume, that's the time to do it because I'm getting one hell of a, uh, guarantee that I'm going to have rain to, to water it in. Right. Right. So that's where it's, it's okay. But then if you're talking about a drier, non-irrigated area then your water volume can be your best friend yes yes because you're talking about totally opposite there what you don't want to have happen is all your pre-emergent drown the leaf blade never make it to the soil or photodegrade on the leaf blade before it has the opportunity to make it into the soil and then you're left or rendered with a non-effective pre-emergent application then your ass is grass quite literally that was you a are terrible in a joke. world I'm of so trouble. <laughs> no, you're awful. in a world of trouble because uh, the fact of the matter is, is that when you have a pre-emergent that is retained on, on on the very tips of the leaves and it's exposed to sun, that is when your clock is ticking as far as how long you have before it actually gets washed into the soil. And into the root zone of the of the germinating weeds, your clock is ticking. You, you you haven't got a lot of time. All right, Ray. Uh, last one here. The first pictures I sent you. Um, I'm going to uh, it, one second here. I'm going to throw these up on the screen. Uh, let me make sure they actually fit. Oh my goodness, these are mm-hmm. massive files. So. Uh, bear with me, YouTube people, while I shrink these down uh, to fit them on the screen. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll get a couple of them on here, and then I will tell you the story behind this, Ray, that I was given. 
And the story is... Uh, the total amount of lawn is 2,000 square feet. It is Marathon 2 Tall Fescue. For the last couple of years, I've been spraying a Hoganics product every eight weeks. In winter, I have been applying a Nitra King, a fast-release nitrogen every weeks. In warm months, I've been using a slow-release uh, methylene urea, triazone urea every eight weeks. I have used the following fungicides with min minimal success. Dacanil Ultra. Uh, headweight, propiconazole, Aliette. Last year, after aeration and reseed, it looked okay, but around October, November, it got bad. And Whoa. I am, and, and Ray, I have a feeling I know exactly what is going on. Um, so I'm going to continue to throw up these pictures here. But what are your early thoughts on that? My guess is that he's just got too much stuff on the grass. Like, and organics, Matt, re refresh my memory as to what organics is. Yes, I would love to, Ray. Please allow me to do <laughs> such a thing. Um, organics <laughs> is a bacteria product, right? That. And let me let me let me explain this. It is an unknown level, rate, or composition of bacteria strains that exist in a, uh, in a solution that you apply to the soil and you have no idea what happens once it's applied to the soil. But it's just a bunch of bacteria. So effectively, this lawn has been on a nitrogen-only and bacteria program. Okay, and... When somebody tells me or says Marathon Tall Fescue, do you know where I'm thinking of when they see that variety? Uh, no, I'm not familiar with Marathon in the slightest. Okay. The last person that mentioned Marathon to me was this uh, nice customer of mine. She was a school teacher in Southern California. <laughs> oh, interesting. And she... She had the marathon tall fescue in her yard in California before she moved to Hawaii. <laughs> moved back to Hawaii. So, and the thing that I'm thinking of is, okay, all this nitrogen, all of this bacterial stuff, and where are the basic agronomics? Where's your phosphorus? Where's your potassium? Uh, where's your micronutrients and in a lot of places in California your soil pH is also crazy similar to Texas so it's almost like this grass is needing things and I'm also seeing what looks to me like almost like a fertilizer burn actually Yes, this last picture I put up here uh, does appear to be, it looks fertilizer burnish. Um, and I'll tell my story with Hoganics that there is someone I know that was on a Hoganics product and uh, program. Mm -hmm. 
And their recommendation via their rep was always to apply more organics. And so they were continually applying organics, continually applying organics, continually applying organics to the point where whenever they applied fertilizer to the lawns, all of a sudden there was no response or a day's worth of response out of a fertilizer application. And it took a significant amount of fertilizer. We're saying upwards of three pounds of actual potassium chloride per thousand square feet. Three pounds. That, you know, after that <laughs> application, it began, mm -hmm. res it, be it began to respond to nitrogen. And the only thing that we could deduce was the bacteria loads had become so high and so skewed within the soil that literally the soil had to be salted to reset the bacteria loads in the soil in order for it to function correctly. There is a uh, thing about nature. There is a thing about nature that everything happens <laughs> in harmony. Uh, there's a mm -hmm. certain amount of figured outness that already exists that we humans attempt to manipulate and sometimes fail. And this is one of those instances where when you have no real idea of what you're adding, and then when you do add it, what actually happens to it after you apply it, Unfortunately, it can lead to one of these situations where you may be so high in certain amounts of bacteria that you may not have naturally existing predatory populations that would keep that normally in check from becoming too excessive. So unfortunately, it does become too excessive and then it becomes cannibalistic or uh, it turns on other good bacteria that you may need or may turn on the bacteria that helps balance this one out. But in effect, yes, the, the the earth actually had to be salted in order for it to respond to fertilizer again. I'm not saying you know, that's what happened here, but whenever I hear about people using bacteria, I get really, really nervous because there is not a native soil in America that doesn't have ample bacteria in it. Right, End of story. Right. And for me... This is almost a case of, at this point, if I'm not sure, I would actually go to something that one of my, my Simplot vendor refers to as my sterilization protocol. <laughs> and you know, no, no, wait, wait. And do you know what that is? I don't. Sterilization pro protocol is 12 ounces of a combination peroxyacetic acid and hydrogen peroxide biocide. It's called Zeratol. And you drench that into the turf and you repeat that every five days. And what that is, is that's basically a biological reset because a lot of your funguses perish. Of course, your bacteria is going to perish. Viruses perish. Everything is just uh, oxidized by that, you know, peroxyacetic and hydrogen peroxide. Yeah. So as and um, yeah, I, I want to make this clear too that okay, my first approach to this was is that when I hear that kind of a program, a organics and nitrogen program, there is nothing agronomic about that. That is so far away from agronomy. 
no matter how you slice it, cut it, shape it, ship it, whatever you want to do, a pure program of organics and nitrogen is it goes against everything that a plant could ever want. Now, so mm. first things first, the first thing I would do is apply a real agronomic program and probably wean off or completely get rid of the organics for the time being just to see what kind of response we get. Because also they're running a pretty elite uh, uh, um, uh, fungicide regimen on top of it too, right? They don't run an alley yet. They're using propaganda. They're you know, using headway. In fact, they had a dacondil going out there. And typically, <laughs> if you're on a dacondil program, you're not dealing with a whole lot there. I mean, that's uh, that's pretty effective. That's way off label too, especially to be doing that in California. Uh, you get ready to boy, you, you might go to jail for that in California. I don't know, but. You know, first things first, I would put it on a real agronomic program. And then if that didn't work, that would leave me, I would have eliminated the variables that I needed to know that if a strong fungicide program and a strong agronomic program are not correcting the issues, then the an overabundance probably of non-native bacteria have built up in my soil and it's time to hit the reset button. Yep. Yep. That's the, and furthermore, just make note that None of the fungicides or et cetera that I heard materially or substantially affect soil bacteria. No. And I want to put that out there because a lot of people are afraid, for example, that when they use a fungicide, they're going to destroy their soil biology. Uh, not true. Not true at all because most of those fungicides are very specific to attacking only certain species of fungicides. And the only one that I can think of that may start to deviate off of that would be the daconil, but the amount of daconil that you'd have to apply would be way, way off label. And so you're not even close. <laughs> and, and not even that, after a, a, a fairly short amount of time, after one of those applications, any kind of movement that does occur is going to reset. So you're not going to be able to apply those fungicides and undo everything you've been applying. That's why we see um, what is the what is the bacterial fungicide that came out of the research triangle in North Carolina? Um, uh, C Pro Serenade C Pro sells it. Uh, hang on, I, there, I think it's uh, there's one, one of those companies. Uh, Zio Zio is the one I was thinking mm -hmm. of. Zio is Pseudomonas uh, chlora, chloraphis strain. And this is one. You tank mix this with the Zoxystrobin when you make a fungicide application. Yeah, you can tank Yeah, you can tank this with Zoxystrobin. And actually I'm I'm familiar with this uh, different chemistry sold by Cleary called uh, a firm. Yes, yes. And what a firm yes. is, is, is a firm is literally a antibiotic that is, I guess, kind of like a, I guess a tetracycline or a neomycin relative, except it affects funguses. And there is precedent for it because I've heard of this uh, other actual antibiotic-derived fungicide that was thankfully yanked from the market because it was such a poison. <laughs> so, 
So I never got to use it. I heard about it, but it was literally gone and off the market by 1980. <laughs> but yeah, the, you know, so... There are funguses, there are actual antibiotics, but just know that even in that realm, there is there are very few examples of something that is a universal biocide. And fungicides aren't that. They're very they're very narrow spectrum as far as what they'll actually affect. Right. That's right. 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 <laughs> yeah, uh, it, it, it's. Uh, I, I know we would we would be making a lot of people angry if we started saying here that you know, oh, you don't need to worry about it because uh, actually they're not that harmful, and, it, and for whatever reason it gets real controversial. But just know that that is the reality of it. That you know, that's, yeah, that's the truth. Is that it does not broadly affect you know, all manner of organisms. And in fact, I don't think something could get EPA registration, for example, unless, of course, that broadly effective and active product had such an, uh, such a short environmental half-life. Like, for example, that Xeratol decomposes into, you know, water in, like, you know, a day or two, and that's the only reason why it's even permitted on the market is because it decomposes so rapidly. Because uh, I know OSU Turfman and I are always joking about mercury. And the reason why we're always joking about mercury is because prior to the 1980s, Mercury was used as a turf fungicide, especially for things like snow mold. <laughs> However, mercury-based fungicides are the reason why there are no old golf maintenance people around. They all died. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they all died, so... So, you know, but that's an example of something that actually is a biocide that affects funguses, bacteria, etc., broadly and rather indiscriminately. But I don't see that happening. And that's why, for example, when you said organics, Bacchanal, Headway, etc., I thought, okay. The reason why he's still having problems is because the fungicides aren't doing anything about that bacterial imbalance slash overpopulation. Yep. So that's why he's got that weird symptom. And you know what? You know what else is quite possible is with the deranged bacterial balance in the soil mat. You know what can happen? What's that? If your bacterial balance is deranged and you're applying a lot of nitrogen, what will happen is free ammonia can build up in the soil and become toxic. That's a good point, too. Ammonia toxicity uh, due to uh, excessive mineralization taking place. Actually, it's an inhibition of mineralization where... That it is stuck 
as ammonia and not able to convert uh, to nitrate. And, uh, yeah. And, okay, and the, and the, and previously the most the time the, when that became apparent is back in the day when you could gas soil with methyl bromide because the methyl bromide would kill the nitrifying bacteria. And until the populations of the nitrifying bacteria bounce back, if you applied too much ammonium nitrogen right after you, you gassed, you'd actually kill your crop. You know, that is one of the things that's untalked about that I feel like we need to, uh, one day this season, we need to talk about balancing ammonia and nitrates. Uh, Pace Turf has done some phenomenal research on that, and so it's super easy to cite and uh, and just kind of go through the the nitty gritty of it. So interesting, interesting stuff. Ray, I'm yeah. gonna have to go. I have to. I have to. Uh, I gotta go uh, uh, say good night to the kids and all that fun stuff. But I want to thank you yeah. so much for taking the time to come join us for another great episode of Pick the Doc's Brain. <laughs> all right, Matt, and yeah, see. Hey, good night to the kids, and uh, I guess we'll see. I'll talk to you again. <laughs> yes, sir. All right, Ray, you have a good evening. And everybody out there in uh, uh, YouTube world, I want to thank you all for tuning in. Uh, thank you for, for the support. You know, this is, again, Ray purely does this out of the goodness of his heart and his quest to, uh, you know, be a teacher and a representative of, of good agronomy out there to show the, pro the positive things that us in the turfgrass industry are actually doing. Y'all have a fantastic evening, and we'll catch you on the flip side. Oops. <laughs>